وما أرسلنا من قبلك إلا رجالا نوحي إليهم فاسألوا أهل الذكر إن كنتم لا تعلمون السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن ولهم بعد uh, Today's uh, Q&A is going to be one, uh, one answer to a question that I have received from many different people from around the globe for the last few weeks and I have hesitated to answer it but uh, uh, I uh, said Bismillah and inshaAllah Ta'ala will be answering that one today. And so uh, the summary of all of these questions that have come in is with respect to the situation that is ongoing uh, with the cartoon controversy and the, uh, the, uh, the, the killings that took place. And many people are asking, well, what is uh, the Islamic ruling, the Sharia ruling on those uh, who commit this crime of, of blasphemy? And if uh, the penalty for blasphemy is as some of the clerics are saying, well then what can we say about the reality of what, what is going on and about the uh, vigilante justice that is being enacted by uh, these people in their uh, response to the cartoon controversy. So it's gonna be a very uh, sensitive question and it is one that uh, is of pertinence. And so our question today is basically the Islamic ruling on blasphemy and what is to be done in minority situations such as the countries that we live in when uh, such blasphemy occurs against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or against the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now uh, this question is a very difficult one and uh, I hesitated to answer it because it is a very sensitive uh, question, it is very easily misunderstood. Uh, nonetheless, I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for ikhlas and for tawfiq and ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to guide me to say uh, the truth in the manner that is the best and the wisest. Uh, when I found that nobody is really discussing this issue uh, explicitly and people's questions are becoming more and more, uh, I guess some answer inshallah is better than none if it is done properly. And I hope that this is the beginning of other conversations. Perhaps other people can also uh, contribute. And of course, one of our main uh, concerns in this, uh, with regards to this question, is the extremely sensitive nature of this topic. We have people uh, that are on all sides of the spectrum that are just waiting for any type of person uh, of a Muslim background to make a 10 second clip that they can take and distort and then go run with it, that this person is justifying or this person is doing uh, whatever. And so we have people, for example, on the far right, you know, that are just waiting to find anything that is, that is you know, uh, uh, going to paint Muslims in a negative light that is somehow going to be interpreted interpreted uh, to justify uh, this act of vigilante justice, despite the fact that I have been consistent throughout all of these uh, you know, years even, not just before this controversy from the beginning, that uh, the, the killing of uh, people, even if they have done something uh, wrong or immoral or, or unethical, is itself immoral and unethical and unjustified. And I have said this from the beginning. So you have to be careful that there is no justification that is read in, and I make this disclaimer from the very beginning. We also have, of course, uh, people of of our own uh, faith tradition that are also looking for slip-ups, but the exact opposite. They are also looking to find uh, there are people that are doing their own vigilante justice online with their 10-second video clips and their uh, quote-unquote exposés that are especially against uh, established, let's say, uh, clerics or established uh, you know, people of knowledge, and they have become famous or infamous, I should say, for uh, 
scouring through hundreds of hours of video clips and finding uh, 10 second, you know, uh, clips and then uh, blasting them on social media that, oh, Imam so-and-so has worshipped the devil or Sheikh so-and-so has, you know, done such a shirky crime or whatever. And uh, of course, I have also been under attack by this. And of course, it's a nuisance and irritating. There's no question about this. It's something that uh, takes up time and, and, and so social media becomes a buzz. And we have people like this as well, that if a person, uh, uh, unfortunately, these brothers, not only are they not qualified, because they're not, they're not capable of differentiating between legitimate opinions that are based on ijtihad that might be acceptable even if you don't agree with them, versus opinions that are outside the bound of acceptability. And so we have to battle both of these mindsets, the far right from without, and I call them the far right from within, because these are also the uh, uber fanatical from our own midst that any disagreement from their mindset, from their limited knowledge, is automatically interpreted as a rejection of the sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even though ironically, none of them have studied the sharia, none of them have actually trained with ulama, they are all self-taught with a little bit of, you know, uh, classes here and there, and then uh, they are cr critiquing uh, people that have studied more than them, but khair. So we're walking into a, line f uh, a landmine, I'm walking into a landmine, and I know that this answer, uh, this entire video that I'm going to be giving, uh, that it is very easy to misinterpret. And I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for His protection and for allow me to speak the truth in this regard, to be fair to our uh, sharia and to be faithful to our sharia, and also uh, to take into account the allowances that the sharia itself gives. Now, today's, so the entire talk today, the entire Q&A is gonna be about this question because it's a very detailed one. And even in this is going to be summarized. I'm going to be addressing this question from four different angles. And I need you to go along with me one by one. And if anybody takes any 10, 20 second clip, please just negate that and listen to the whole lecture so that you can listen to the entire thing in context. Uh, I'm gonna be answering this question from four different angles. First and foremost, what do the books of Islamic law state? What is the position of the madhahib, the classical schools about uh, blasphemy? What do the Hanafi, Shafi, Maliki, Hanbalis, very briefly, let's go over them. What exactly is found in our textbooks? These are the canons of law. This is what is taught, you know, uh, when you're studying uh, Islamic law at any type of institution. This is what uh, is taught. So what is there about the Sharia uh, in the classical books of fiqh? Secondly, very briefly, we're also gonna mention, okay, how has this law been applied historically? Because law is one thing and application is another, and both need to be considered. All too often, sometimes even some of our madrasa graduates, they study law, but they don't study history. And it is important to contextualize and understand how even our own societies, how the Umayyads and Abbasids, how you know the great empires of the past actually applied these laws. How often was it applied? So that's another angle that needs to be looked at. The third angle that I'm gonna be looking at, very briefly, again, all of these are very brief uh, responses, is that, okay, classical law is one thing, Islamic history is one thing, now modernity, in our times, in the current climate that we live in, is there any room for interpretation? Can we uh, rethink through? Can these laws, are they immutable? Absolutely, in, in that they cannot be changed at all? Or can some circumstances allow for some fine tuning, for some rethinking in specific times and places? So this is the third uh, question that we need to address. And then the final question is that, okay, all of these are great, that uh, for Muslim majority countries, the third question comes in handy. For Muslim minority, 
minorities living in Western lands. The fourth question or angle is, what do we do? Okay, the third question is, Muslim majority countries, is there room to think through this and to fine tune or is it immutable? The fourth question, Muslim minorities, us in America, in England, in France, in Canada, in Australia, in Germany, and across you know the, the, the uh, European and Western worlds, we are living in secular democracies. We're living as a minority, and we all understand that uh, the laws of the land are based on sources that are not our sources. So what is the responsibility of Muslims living in Western lands vis-a-vis -vis the laws found in the classical books uh, and uh, the, the rulings pertaining to uh, any type of judgment that is of a penal nature, i.e. Uh, criminal laws that are found in the Sharia. So we're going to be doing all four of these. And again, time is always limited. Each one of these can be written about and they have been written about in many, many volumes. But I'm just going to introduce you to some key points that inshallah ta'ala can be of benefit. First and foremost, the books of fiqh. Now before we begin, again to contextualize and to understand, the goals of Islamic law are very different than the goals of Western law. Islamic law, the Sharia aims to build a moral society, right? It is of the goals of the Sharia to have a moral society. It is not of the goals of uh, the Constitution of America to build a moral society in the United States of America. It's not of their goals. So the Sharia's fundamental sources and the Sharia's visions and the Sharia's methodologies and the Sharia's goals are very different than the goals of the modern nation state and of the modern constitutions of the lands that we live in. And therefore, it should come as no surprise that because the Sharia wants to build a morally upright and sound society, it is looking at overall the benefits and the harms that will happen in a society if something were to be rampant. Therefore, for example, uh, uh, selling drugs or uh, visual represent representations of pornography. Obviously, the Sharia will not, cannot, should not allow these types of things in public, uh, regardless of what a private sin is, because even in an Islamic land, you know, the, the what is happening in the privacy of your house, it's not your neighbor's business to go barging in. That's between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yes, if somebody knows, they can warn you privately. But to have this in public, to have a sin happening in public, to have prostitution publicly done, to have uh, pornography publicly, there is no question that the Sharia would not allow this because that is not conducive to a morally upright society. And therefore, it is no, uh, it's not something that is that strange to say that obviously open mocking of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and open mocking of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam would not be allowed. Now, this is different than the rights that the Sharia gives to non-Muslims to be uh, practicing their faith. We all know there is no controversy in this regard that the Ahl al-Dhimma, uh, the Ahl al-Kitab, they have the right to practice their faith even under the Khulafa al-Rashidun, they were practicing their faith. You had uh, Christians, you had Zoroastrians, you had uh, you had uh, the Persian Zoroastrians, you had uh, the Jewish people, all of them are living their lives very visibly uh, Christian or Jewish or Zoroastrian. Uh, in in, uh, in uh, Mughal lands, there were also the, the Hindus living there, the Mughal, uh, because they followed Hanafi fiqh, they were also allowing other faith traditions as well. Some faith traditions were not 
disallow uh, paganism or idolatry, and the, the Hanafi madhab uh, allows it as a part of uh, you know what is permitted uh, under an Islamic land. And it is very clear that these faiths were allowed to practice their rituals, which included, for, from our perspective, shirk and kufr. Right? When you worship other than Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, this is shirk. Uh, when you claim that God has a son or there's a Trinity, this is kufr. It's a type of shirk as well. The Christians are allowed to believe and practice and teach their children and they do their rituals in their houses of worship but they are not allowed to proselytize outside this is in you know in uh, the the conditions of Umar al-Khattab radiallahu anhu they're not allowed to proselytize uh, to others they may do that and pass their faith down to their children and they may do things that we deem immoral we deem to be unethical uh, a part of christian rituals was to drink wine and our books of fiqh are explicit that uh, the christians will drink their wine in their churches but they cannot sell wine in public they cannot come and cause muslims or help muslims to drink wine they're doing this in their houses of worship and in their you know dinners they're having that that's their uh, allowance in the sharia it is not something that they can do uh, upon the muslims so it is very clear that the sharia allows uh, the private kufr and shirk, if you like, of these individuals, and it does not allow uh, them to be doing them in public in front of the Muslims or enticing Muslims in this regard. Now, obviously, uh, this is in contrast to modern notions of liberalism and, and, and secularism, uh, and this is something that we are all familiar with, that in the lands that we live in, that the government has taken a neutral role, or it is supposed to take a neutral role, and the government has more of an uh, emphasis on individual choices, that as long as you do what you want, generally speaking, nobody's going to interfere in your faith tradition. As we said, Islamic law takes into account both individual choice and effects on community. And therefore, uh, as I said, ridiculing Allah and His Messenger publicly, this is something that no madhab, no scholar of Islam has tolerated in the lands of Islam. Any land that is governed by the Sharia, uh, that it would not be allowed to publicly mock Allah and His Messenger. That uh, they can, nobody can go into the public square and say derogatory things or a'udhu billah, disrespect the Quran, because again, this is an open invitation uh, to uh, to uh, uh, to a rejection of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the sharia aims for a morally upright society. It is quite clear therefore that uh, there is unanimous consensus in all of the madhahib, in all the books of fiqh, that public provocation in the lands of Islam against the signs of Islam would not be allowed. And this is with regards to the Quran, uh, billah, uh, you know, doing something sacrilegious to the Quran or verbally abusing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or verbally abusing the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. This will not be tolerated and none of the classical books of fiqh allowed this to happen and they all said it must be stopped. Now again, I'm talking about a deliberate, deliberate and clear provocation. We are not talking about a non-Muslim doing what is a part of his faith or her faith. And that might include something that is uh, you know, derogatory for us. For example, worshiping other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is something that we find 
offensive, morally speaking, but they're allowed to do this in the privacy of their uh, of their places of worship. There's nothing that the Sharia will come between them and their rituals. Uh, for the Christian to claim that they believe in a trinity, well, of course they believe in a trinity, and the Quran says that do not say trinity, uh, meaning do not say it morally. But the Christian is allowed to say it politically, even in the lands of Islam. That if a Muslim were to ask him, "What do you believe?" and the Christian says, "Oh, I believe uh, in the trinity," this is a factually correct statement that is morally repugnant and politically sanctioned. This is not going to be considered blasphemy. If the Christian were to be asked by the Muslim that, hey, do you believe that you know Jesus is the Son of God? And the Christian says, yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. The Quran says, Surah Maryam, the Quran says that the, that the mountains are going to break asunder and the, the, the heavens are going to cleft into two because they claim that Allah has a son. So morally it is repugnant to say Allah has a son. Politically, it is not blasphemy. If a Christian simply tells you, this is my belief, what would be considered blasphemy in the lands of Islam? Something that is understood, and this requires obviously, you know, a judge and whatnot, is something that is understood that it is a deliberate provocation. It is a deliberate attempt to ridicule the signs of Islam. A Christian being a Christian, a Jew being a Jew, a Zoroastrian being a Zoroastrian, and basically doing what a Zoroastrian is supposed to do, that cannot and should never be interpreted as being derogatory in and of itself. That's their faith tradition. But to go above and beyond this and to make a point to be sacrilegious to the faith of Islam, this is something that the books of fiqh would not allow. Now, uh, after this comes the issue of the punishment. What is the punishment for the one who would do this? Well, the books of fiqh mention a number of things. Uh, there is a differentiation if it comes from a Muslim or from a non-Muslim. And also there's some discussion of whether the person has the opportunity to repent or not to repent. And the details of this are much longer than this topic deserves. The majority position though, and some have claimed ijma' is that a person who blasphemes against Allah and his messenger is arrested by uh, the state, by the proper authorities. He is tried and he is allowed to defend himself. Is he sane? Is he insane? Did did he know what he's doing? Does he actually, you know, uh, if somebody saw him, you know, uh, throwing something on the ground and turns out it's a mushaf and he didn't know, for example, so does he understand what he's doing? Is he intending to provocate? Is he of sane mind or not? If such a person intended to blaspheme, if there was clear intent, then the majority position is that indeed the penalty for public blasphemy is indeed execution. And there is no, this is the reality of what our books of fiqh state. Now, some scholars say that he should be allowed the opportunity to repent and others said that a public provocation requires a public punishment and a repentance will be private between him and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Some other scholars differentiated between uh, somebody who blasphemes against Allah versus somebody who blasphemes against the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. A lot of discussion you know that is again beyond the scope of this. Uh, Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah by the way has a, a very uh, thorough book uh, in this regard which is entitled As-Sadim uh, which is basically a very detailed exposition. It's over 500 pages about the ruling of the one who makes fun of the messenger. And of course, he took the position, which is the majority position, that this person should be executed. Now, some have claimed that there's ijma' on this issue. And they quote Ibn al-Mundir, one of the early scholars of Islam, who wrote a book about ijma' unanimous consensus. Ibn al-Mundir mentions, that there is a jma' that whoever curses the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that he is to be executed. However, it appears that this ijma' 
is for a Muslim who curses the Messenger As for the non-Muslim, the Dhimmi, who curses the Messenger, uh, there is a dissenting voice uh, amongst the Hanafi ulama. In fact, uh, many of the early Hanafi scholars are quite explicit in this regard. Imam al-Tahawi in his Mukhtasar Ikhtilaf al-Ulama, he says, قَالَ أَصْحَابُنَا فِي مَنْ سَبَّ النَّبِيَ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ وَعَابَهُ وَكَانَ مُسْلِمًا فَقَدْ صَارَ مُرْتَدًّا وَلَوْ كَانَ ذِمِّيًّا عُزِّرَ وَلَمْ يُقْتَلْ That he says, the Hanafi say that if a Muslim insults the Prophet وسلم, this is riddah and he should be killed. But if he it is a dhimmi, a non-Muslim, then this person is going to be punished but not going to be uh, killed. And Al-Jassas, uh, the famous Hanafi Mufassir and Alim and Sheikh, he, uh, he died at 370 Hijrah. He writes um, in his book, Sharh Al-Mukhtasar Al-Tahawi Fi Al-Fiqh Al-Hanafi, sorry, it is mentioned in this book, that Al-Jassas says, that whoever is from the Ahlul Dhimmah, meaning the non-Muslims, and he uh, makes fun of the messenger, that person should be uh, punished, but not by killing, i.e. stop him, take him to jail, fine him, but he's not to be uh, killed. And then he says, the reason being that their religion is itself kufr, their religion is the worship of other than Allah, their religion, their religion necessitates them rejecting uh, the messenger, and so their faith itself has enough kufr in it that if they were to go beyond this, then the thing that they should be punished for is to go public with that type of belief and cause chaos. That's basically the uh, philosophy. And then he mentions, this is um, Al-Jassas mentioning that uh, the Prophet ﷺ was basically mocked in his lifetime and he uh, did not uh, punish uh, the people who did that. For example, when a group of people came uh, of a Yehudi background and said to him, Assamu alaykum. Assam means the plague, the death be upon you, rather than Assalamu alaykum. And the Prophet understood and he said, may, and they, may it be upon you as well. And uh, the famous uh, Hanafi jurist Al Quduri, who of course wrote the most famous beginning or introductory matin of Hanafi fiqh, uh, Al Quduri also says that uh, if the Ahl al Dhimma, if the people of the non Muslim background, they uh, curse Allah subhanahu then this is something that automatically when they say that he has a child, it is a type of curse. And when the Zoroastrian says that he's light and dark, God is light and dark, this is also a type of curse. And so the same applies if a dhimmi were to say something bad about the Prophet It is simply a different type of kufr other than the kufr he is already upon. So he doesn't deserve the death penalty basically uh, because of that, uh, but he does deserve that he should, that he should be stopped from basically uh, publicizing it. And the same is the famous Al-Kasani, the famous author Bada'i al-Sana'i, Sana'i, he says the same thing, وَكَذَلِكَ لَوْ سَبَّ النَّبِيَ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ لَا يَنْتَقِضُ عَهْدُهُ لِأَنَّ هَذَا زِيَادَةُ كُفْرٍ عَلَىٰ كُفْرٍ The same mentality or the notion, the Kasani says the same thing. Now, so what we see here is that the Hanafi uh, ulama, the giants of the Hanafi school of early Islam. These are all major names, Quduri, Kasani, Jassas. These are the giants. These are the founders of the, the Hanafi law after Imam Abu Hanifa himself. They all held a similar position that the non-Muslim who makes fun of the uh, Prophet ﷺ, he is to be disciplined and punished, but not to be executed. Uh, however, this position uh, was not adopted by the Shafi'is and the Malikis and the Hanbalis, and also later Hanafi 
Hanafis came and they also adopted the other three positions, which is, as you know, in common in our lands today of India, Pakistan and whatnot, it is understood that's their modern position. Interestingly, the classical school has a different uh, opinion in this regard. So uh, this is the first question that is answered, what do the books of fiqh state? To conclude, in a land governed by the, the sharia that is, you know, um, found in the madhahib, basically all of the madhahib, they have all claimed that it is not allowed to publicly ridicule anything that is sacred. Uh, and in fact, the Quran explicitly forbids even Muslims from publicly ridiculing uh, the gods of uh, the, the idolaters, the pagans. The, the, the Quran says, don't curse their gods because in response, they're gonna do nothing but curse Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You haven't gained anything. So we do not uh, make fun of or ridicule uh, anything that is sacred. We don't make a provocation. And this is especially upon uh, those uh, that are outside of our faith tradition. They do not and they should not make fun of our faith when they're living in in our lands uh, and they should be stopped if they do so. Now, if they do so, according to three of the four schools of law, there is indeed the punishment that is uh, the blasphemy, which is execution. And the Hanafis, early Hanafi said that they should be reprimanded, but not uh, killed. So this is the first uh, uh, question, and that is classical Islamic uh, fiqh. The second question, historically speaking, was this ruling applied? It is definitely, it was definitely applied. There's no question that if you read the books of history, every once in a while you come across an incident where uh, somebody publicly uh, said something that was derogatory, something negative, and uh, was indeed taken to a court. And uh, generally speaking, a lot of times they were uh, imprisoned or punished or even executed. However, one finds as well that this is not a common occurrence. And the reason for this is that by and large, there was a level of civility and common sense. By and large, people did not go around cursing other people's religions, saying bad things about other people's religions. Everybody understood that this is sacred to the other person. And so it would not be done. And because of this, one does not find a blasphemy case every day of the week or every week of the year. It doesn't work that way. On the contrary, if you read uh, the books of history, you find once every few decades or even century or so, you'll find a very you know big case that happens and you know indeed a trial takes place and sometimes indeed execution occurs. In fact, Ibn Taymiyyah wrote his book, As-Sadim al-Maslul, he wrote it because of a very public case of a Christian person by the name of uh, Asaf, uh, who was publicly making fun of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and uh, the people uh, became very agitated and they took him to the governor and uh, there was a big uh, hue and cry, what should be done? And Ibn Taymiyyah therefore wrote his book that public uh, uh, mockery of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam definitely in Mamluk times uh, should have the death penalty. So it even happened in the time of Ibn Taymiyyah but it happened once in the time of Ibn Taymiyyah and it's not something that was a common occurrence. Uh, Generally speaking, those who went down this path, they did it knowing the results and wanting that attention. They wanted to drive the point home. When you're in a land where everybody knows that if you do something, the penalty is going to be death, why would you do that? You're doing that to bring attention for a greater cause in your opinion. And we see this most infamously in a very famous series of mini incidents that are that are that are, that is now called the incident of the martyrs of Qurtuba of Cordova that Qurtuba the capital of the Andalusian empire you know around 800 CE 
They were a series of Christian priests and monks that began walking in front of the masjid when the people are coming out, let's say after Jum'ah or during the, the height of the bazaar, whatever, and publicly making fun of Allah and His Messenger, loudly shouting out the most vulgar things you know, against A'udhu Billah, the Prophet Wasallam. This is a famous series of incidents. It happened many dozens of times. Why are, are they doing this? What would be the, the result of doing this? They were captured, they were put on trial. Many of them were in fact executed because they did not change their minds and they continued to defend their actions. It is said that maybe up to 50 people uh, were executed over a period of uh, a, a few decades. It wasn't just one day, it was actually a few decades happening. Every few months or something, somebody would do this, cause a big, you know, scene. People would come around, he would be arrested, he would be adamant. And so more than 50 people or up to 50 people were executed over the series of many decades, three decades, maybe 30 years or so. Uh, why? What was the goal? Uh, modern historians remark that the goal of these priests, the goal of these clerics, the clergymen, was to bring attention to what they thought was the dying Christian empire because people were converting to Islam and mass and Christianity was dwindling. Within a few decades, Christianity was a minority faith after it had been a majority faith in Andalusia. And so these clerics wanted to bring attention, they wanted to die for their cause, you know, as they thought that Christ died for the sins of mankind. They wanted to die for the cause of Christianity, to empower, to embolden other Christians, to make them wake up from their prospective slumber, right? To stop converting to Islam. Obviously it didn't succeed and Andalus ended up a majority Muslim land for over 750 years as we all know. But in early Andalusian time, this is the first century of the capture of Andalus, when people are embracing uh, Islam and Christianity is beginning to become a minority, this incident happened and it shows you the psychology. Why would somebody do this, right? They would do this to bring attention to themselves for their causes uh, for a reason that they thought was uh, legitimate. And by the way, the, you know, to, there's always, this is something that brings controversy in every generation. A decade ago, I think eight years ago in Saudi Arabia, which claims to be governed by the Sharia, by the way, in Saudi Arabia, a person from Mecca, uh, one of their citizens, one of their 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 own, he uh, tweeted or Facebook, you know, something very you know derogatory about the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, one of their own, not some outsider foreigner, one of their own, born and raised Muslim, whatnot, and the whole community, you know, basically uh, became very agitated as they should. I mean, somebody's doing this, especially in Mecca, and so he was in fact arrested and he was tried, and uh, scholars came to speak to him and eventually he repented from his claim. He asked Allah's forgiveness and a number of famous clerics said that they have spoken to him one-on-one -on -one and they genuinely believe that, you know, he, he admitted that he made some mistakes and eventually he was actually let go and he is still, you know, alive and healthy in Saudi Arabia after having done what he had done. So the point being, this type of issue is nothing new historically. We have had episodes and incidents within the lands of Islam and generally speaking, those who do this, you know, if they don't repent and they are persistent, it has happened historically that the message is sent to the rest of society. There is a red line, it should not be crossed. So that is the second point. However, it is not a common occurrence. It does happen and you will find it, but it's not something that is there every single time. And we also find leeway as what happened a decade ago uh, in the lands of Mecca itself, uh, when somebody repents, when a Muslim repents and whatnot. The third issue then, so we talked about the classical fiqh books. We very briefly mentioned some historical incidents. Now the third issue, which is the, one of the most sensitive ones and especially our you know Muslim audiences, they get very agitated with regards to this topic.
And that is when somebody comes and says that, is there any leeway in these laws in a Muslim majority land? Is there room to rethink through? Or are they completely immutable? And this is a very detailed discussion, which once again, I'm just going to introduce so that you are aware that this is something that is going, going on. And inshallah, maybe one day myself, or maybe somebody who is more qualified than me, I'm in the end of the day, I consider myself a minor student of knowledge. Uh, as I have said many times that anything that I say to you, Alhamdulillah, there is precedence that any fiqhi position I hold, there's always people far more knowledgeable than me that have said it and hold it. I do not consider myself qualified to make independent Independent ijtihad in issues of fiqh. I have never done this. I always quote you people that I think are more knowledgeable than me and uh, uh, I respect them. Yes, I make ijtihad within the scholars' ijtihad, right? People bigger than me and better than me. I feel qualified to look at what they're doing and then maybe pick and choose. But to go and break away from their consensus or do something that they have not done that I consider to be uh, of the senior scholars of Islam, uh, I don't know of any position that I hold of a fiqhi nature that uh, is unprecedented, alhamdulillah. And the same goes for what, what I'm about to say in the next few minutes as well. Now, again, let me preface this by saying that the majority of those who speak about these issues, the majority of our brethren who criticize myself and others uh, when they hear something that they, they don't have not, not heard before, and I say this with gentleness, they are not qualified to speak or to criticize. They have not studied the Sharia. And one of the causes of this knee-jerk emotionalistic reaction is the very real threat or danger of people rejecting the Sharia. That's undoubtedly what is happening that we have in our midst, many people who don't care what Islamic law says. Many people who they are, they, they call themselves progressives or they're ultra liberals, where they really have no care or concern for our tradition and they are wanting to do away with anything that is problematic in the Sharia and they want to basically consider our modern uh, Western values to basically be exactly the same as Sharia, which is nonsensical. They're completely different paradigms. Um, are they compatible? Yes, you can be a Muslim living in Western lands and democracies uh, being faithful to the Sharia, but are they the same? Are they, the, are they going to be overlapping with one another at a national level? Obviously not. So what happens when you find a group of people that are holding views that are clearly without any basis, that are based in their own hawa or their desires, you have a knee-jerk reaction from those who want to defend Islam. They want to plant, you know, the flag of Islam deep into the ground. And then ulama come along, trained clerics come along, fuqaha come along. And they say, well, okay, in this issue, maybe we can rethink through for today, for this time and place, for this era. And all of a sudden, these young, generally they're young or they're overzealous or they're, even if they're sincere, many of them are sincere, but they're not trained. All of a sudden, they feel this sheikh has become ultra-liberal. This sheikh has become progressive. And so they start refuting, they start criticizing. And of course, this goes back to the problem that they themselves have a very, very shallow understanding of the Sharia. And as I have said, almost all of those that are commonly refuting, you know, other, uh, you know, people of knowledge online, generally speaking, they have never studied one book of fiqh, one book of actual fiqh cover to cover, much less dozens of books, much less for many years or decades. And they simply, they're not qualified to be uh, critical. 
In fact, dear Muslims, there is a separate branch of knowledge, a separate branch of fiqh that is called a siyasa a shariya, which is basically how to rule in accordance with the sharia. Now, the siyasa to sharia, the, 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 the concept of siyasa based upon sharia is a separate branch than fiqh. This is something that a lot of people simply do not understand. Generally speaking, when it comes to how to run a country, you don't open the books of fiqh to figure out how to run a country or to run a land or to run a khilafah. It never worked that way. It is a separate branch of knowledge which the students of sharia study and they know very well. And unfortunately, most of those who are criticizing don't even know there is a separate branch of knowledge called the siyasa of the sharia. They have no knowledge of the existence of this knowledge. How do you expect them to then be qualified to criticize or to take this on? And uh, to give you a very simple example, so that you help understand this, that look, this is a topic that was debated and discussed even from the beginning of times. Ibn al-Qayyim writes quite a lot about this. You know, you have also uh, great ulama of the past, you know, al-Juwayni, uh, al-Mawardi, the writing about Ahkam Sultaniyah, they're writing about uh, governance in Islam, right? How does governance take place in an Islamic land? And you have different schools and different philosophies of what to do. Added to that, dear Muslims, we also have to understand that our times have changed dramatically. Now you get this simplistic response, but the Sharia of Allah never changes. And the response back is nobody is asking to change the Sharia of Allah. But fiqh is not the Sharia, and books of fiqh are not the Sharia. And the Sharia takes circumstances into account. And the best example that inshallah all of us can understand is the simple example of Islam. Islamic economics, of Islamic economics. This is one of the most clear-cut, crystal clear examples. You have classical economics taught in the books of fiqh. You have modern Islamic finance and modern Islamic economics that you have many books in English and Urdu and Arabic written about that deal with modern, the modern, you know, system in the world today. These two genres at first glance are absolutely unlinked, they're not linked together, unrecognizable. In other words, you can study classical Islamic fiqh in any book of any madhab, and you will be absolutely and totally ignorant about 99% of the questions that the average Muslim in your community is gonna ask you about Islamic finance. Classical Islamic fiqh dealing with finance has almost no relevance to the modern Muslim living in the cities of the world today, connected with the banking system, dealing with fiat currencies, dealing with banks and mortgages and credit cards and stocks and options and home financing and insurance. You can study dozens of books of fiqh and you will not be qualified to answer the most basic question that your neighbor asks you because the two sciences are so different. Also, if you are a beginner student of Islamic finance and you took a few basic books of Islamic finance, you would think that uh, this has nothing to do with classical Islamic fiqh. You're not going to find an immediate correlation. It takes an intermediate level of knowledge. It takes a deep study to understand modern Islamic finance is based completely on classical finance. That modern Islamic finance takes its rulings from the philosophy of classical finance, but it has extracted them, extrapolated them so that it fits the situation of our times. And this is something that is well known. In fact, Islamic finance only began as a discipline 70 years ago in the 1960s, right? Literally 1960s, the first book of Islamic finance in the modern 
modern world, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and it's still an ongoing field where you have specialists on their own. Now, what has this got to do with the topic at hand? Very simple. If we all understand, even the most innocent, basic, overzealous Muslim understands that I will not find the answers to my modern problems of finance in the books written a thousand years ago. And I need to go to a scholar that is trained not only in the classical, but in the modern. And that the knowledge that this scholar has is a new knowledge that is derived from the classical. If you can understand this, and you understand that the Sharia has not been thrown out the window, the Sharia has not been abrogated, this isn't a modernist or liberal, why can you not understand that the world has changed dramatically? The political landscape has changed dramatically. The world as it exists today is radically different than the world as it was 50, 100, 200, 500, 1000 years ago. The rise of nation states is a major difference between classical times and our times. The nation state concept is foreign to early Islam, medieval Islam. No one even understood there was no nation state throughout most of human history. The concept that all people uh, of a certain nation should share the same rights because of geography, not because of ethnicity, not because of race, not because of tribe, not because of religion. This is an alien concept to most of human history. The concept of countries with land masses that are already demarcated, the concept of United Nations, the concept of global treaties and every country has a default pacifist relationship with other countries. This is something that is totally unprecedented. Given all of this, dear Muslims, why is it difficult to understand that almost every major scholar that is worth his salt, almost every you know reputable alim that has studied for decades and is global, I'm not talking about myself, I'm a minor student of knowledge. I'm talking about the experts that sit at the fiqh councils around the globe, the fiqh councils of Mecca, the fiqh councils of Europe, the fiqh councils across the globe, those ulama that are global ulama, almost all of them, in fact, I'm not aware of any, but any that would disagree with, with what I'm about to say, are arguing that when it comes to Islamic governance, how a Muslim majority country should be run, that's something that we should go come to the table with an open mind and we should discuss. Now, I am not saying to be very clear, I am not arguing here for a radical change in our laws of ridda, in our laws of blasphemy. I'm not arguing for that. What I am arguing is that to have a conversation about how modern countries and nation states should deal with these issues is not ridda in and of itself. It is not a rejection of the sharia. This is a part of siyasatu sharia. This is a part of how governance should happen within, uh, within Islam. And you know, again, because I am in that field, I discuss so many issues with so many, you know, ulama far more knowledgeable than me, many who are deemed to be conservative, you know, by the masses and all of them are willing to talk about issues that the books of fiqh might mention, but in our times to apply them as a policy in a nation state that we have to think it through. And this is something that, in fact, ironically, I was talking to a very famous, I'm not gonna mention names, very famous mufti today, today, uh, uh, the one I'm giving the lecture today, uh, in the afternoon, I was talking to a very famous mufti in South Africa, and speaking about various issues, including this one as well. And again, he's deemed to be, you know, mainstream, conservative, whatnot. And he was also complaining that the problem is that our own people are so narrow-minded that if you 
talk to them about any potential change. They think that, you know, you are throwing the Sharia out the water. And so he himself complained and he said, what happens is that the only course of action for anybody who wants to bring about change is to jump over to the progressive side. And that's why so many of our own young men and women are jumping over to the other side because they're not able to, to utilize the tools that the Sharia itself allowed them to utilize. Why? Because of the overzealous backlash from some of our own members who don't understand that the Sharia allows for the governance of a land to be different than what is found in the personal books of fiqh. This is something that goes back to, uh, again, what the scholars of that time and place would allow. And this is something that uh, should be taken into consideration. And again, we have to deal with um, uh, many issues that uh, I, I'm not advocating any particular position, but we do need to allow the conversation to take place. The world has changed dramatically and the notion of people of different faiths coming together under one nation state, right? And again, to be very blunt here, this the problems that are happening, that have happened in the last 10 years with the Arab Spring, with the rise of an Islamic party in Egypt, right? And they were challenged, this party, they were challenged that you are governing a land that is 10% Christian. Are you going to bring up the laws of the Sharia and apply them in this nation state where by definition, everybody in the nation should be equal? See, here's the point. The Sharia's concept is very different than the nation state. I'm not saying that the Sharia is better, uh, is, is, is worse. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the Sharia has a different philosophy than the nation state. How much of the Sharia can be applied in the notion of the nation state. I hope you understand what I'm trying to say here. It's not that, uh, it's not that uh, the Sharia cannot be applied in the modern world. It's that the nation state is a different concept than the Sharia's concept of what the state should be. And you're trying to force a concept that's very different onto this nation state. And that's why we see these tensions and problems. Uh, there's a, again, uh, let me be honest here, my, my background is Pakistani, let's be very blunt here. Look at the reality of blasphemy laws in the country of Pakistan. Look at how it is being misused and abused. Any person of intelligence, any person that is fair-minded will acknowledge that what has happened with this notion of blasphemy laws is opening up the Pandora's box of mob mentality, of vigilante justice. And we see the effects of this. So we have to take into account how this topic is being misused and abused as well. Just because the Sharia calls for certain things to be blasphemous, when you teach and preach it to the masses who are not trained with the technicalities of the law, you open up a Pandora's box and we see the fanaticism that is opened up against minorities and unjust cases or injustice happens over and over again. So all of this is to state that I am not advocating uh, that these laws must be uh, changed. But I am saying ulama of every land have the right to discuss which of these laws and how and to what level and what modifications and what caveats. This is a discussion that is mainstream Sunni Islam. It's not progressive, it's not liberal, it's not rejecting the Sharia. Ah. It is a part and parcel of the Sharia ah, given the circumstances of our time and place. And frankly, if you study the uh, lives of the Khulafa al-Rashidun, if you study what Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali radiallahu anhum themselves did, if you study the early Umayyads, you find them, this is why they were successful. That that they understood that sometimes the siyasa of the land is different than what is found in the books of fiqh and this is something that is uh, well known. So to answer this third point, 
I didn't give an explicit answer. But to answer this third point, in light of the fact that the world has changed, and in light of the fact that there is a clear misapplication and misunderstanding and frankly abuse of these laws, and in light of the fact that what one country does has the potential to impact millions of Muslims in many other countries around the globe, in light of the fact that we have nation states with its own types of laws, it is possible for a conversation to take place in every majority Muslim country amongst the ulama of that country, given the circumstances of that country, and let those ulama, in conjunction with other experts and whatnot, but let those ulama see what is or is not uh, possible, and there is room or leeway for them to decide that. And if they were to do this, this would be something temporary for that time and place. It would not be a permanent cancellation of the sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because obviously that is never, that is going to be forever there until the day of judgment. So that is the third uh, point here. Uh, the, the fourth and final point, which is really the most important for all of us, because all of this is theoretical in the end of the day. What the books of fiqh state is good to learn and study, we should know that. What happened in history, very good to learn and study. What a Muslim majority country can do, it's good for them to discuss. My audience right now, most of you watching this, are Muslims living in minority situations. So that's really the crux of the matter here. The final point and the most important point, what does all of this mean for Muslims living in Western lands? By unanimous consensus, the hudud or the Islamic punishments are not established outside the jurisdiction of the lands of Islam. You need a system, you need a government, you need a court system, you need a police, you need a judiciary to execute Islamic punishments. You need a trial, you need evidence to be presented, you need the accused to defend himself, you need a third party judge that can see what is going on, and then you need the force of the law. There's gotta be a state that does this. Even in the lands of Islam, you don't have the right to act as judge, jury, executioner. You cannot enact vigilante justice. Even in the lands of Islam, it is not something that is allowed. How much more so then in the lands that are not the lands of Islam? When we are a minority, there is simply no argument to be made that this is something that would be allowed even if uh, the punishment for blasphemy might be death in most of the madhab of, 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 of fiqh. That is a ruling that will only apply in the lands of Islam after a judge, after a trial, after all of this has taken place. And then if that law is still being implemented in that land, indeed uh, the classical ulama would say that the punishment for blasphemy is indeed death. That punishment cannot and should not ever be done by an individual, even in the lands of Islam, how much more so when the lands are not the lands of Islam. And Alhamdulillah, no reputable scholar of any land has allowed this type of vigilante justice. Yes, there are some, you know, uh, clerics that, you know, this group memory and others, they find their clips and they've tried to, you know, broadcast them. But these are unknown people. Uh, until memory discovers them, memory is a very, um, uh, a very Islamophobic far-right group, hate group really, that um, wants to spread hatred of the, of the religion. And uh, they find these clips from people uh, that are totally obscure and unknown, and they present them as mainstream Islam. And other, other than that, generally speaking, no reputable cleric has come forth with a fatwa that allows uh, an individual Muslim to attack 
somebody who blasphemes in uh, the lands that are outside the lands of Islam. And the reasons for this are self-evident and obvious. It is common sense. And two simple things can be said. First and foremost, from a technical or legal perspective. And secondly, from an overall masalih and mafasir, their cost-benefit analysis from the goals of the Sharia. As for the technical perspective, if you want to get technical, it's very simple. We are living here with the explicit understanding and with the conditions that have been placed upon us, either by citizenship or by visa status. We are living here with a contract that is implied very explicitly, really. I mean, I say implied, but it is quite explicit that you are not going to cause chaos and fitna and bloodshed. You're not going to go around harming people of this land. You cannot be in this land with their citizenship, with their visas, with the legal status of coming in, except that you have agreed to abide by the laws of this land. And our Sharia does not allow treachery and it does not allow backstabbing. A Muslim honors his word. Allah says in the Quran, The believers are those who live up to their promises and fulfill their covenants. Allah says in the Quran, O you who believe, do not betray the trust of Allah and His Messenger, and do not betray your trusts while you know what you are doing. Don't betray them knowingly. And Allah says in the Quran uh, that If you have entered into a treaty with a country, a nation, with any group of people, and you feel that they're going to break the treaty, Allah says, you have to not betray the treaty. You have to annul the treaty publicly. You have to annul it. You are not allowed to backstab. This is when two entities, two tribes, two nations have entered a treaty and one of them is going to betray. Allah does not allow you to betray. Allah says you have to annul publicly before you do something. And that's very explicit. If they want to betray the treaty with you, Allah says they have already tried to do so and Allah is all powerful against them. Allah did not say if they try to betray, you betray as well. No, betrayal is never allowed. Treachery is never allowed. Our Prophet said, Al-Muslimuna ala shurutihim. Muslims abide by the principles they give unto others. They abide by their conditions. You living in the lands that you are living in as an American citizen, as an immigrant in Canada, as a refugee in, in, in France, wherever you might be, you have been given permission to come in. That permission entails it necessitates that you abide by the laws of that land. You are not allowed Islamically in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to have that citizenship or that visa or that immigrant status or that refugee status and then go around literally backstabbing and killing and plundering. A'udhu billah. This is a complete betrayal of your own promise. And our Prophet sallallahu said the Muslim abides by what he has promised. And there are plenty of evidences in the Sharia for, for, uh, to justify this. For example, Hudayfat ibn al-Yaman, the famous uh, Sahabi, Hudayfat, the very famous Sahabi, the one who kept the secrets of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, when he was migrating from Mecca to Medina, Hudayfa, by the way, was neither Qurashi nor was he Ansari. He was a, a, basically of a tribe that is neither from Medina nor Mecca. So when Hudayfa was migrating, the Quraysh stopped him and the Quraysh were about to kill him. Uh, because he had no protection. There's no government that's going to come and protect him. And Hudayfa said, what if I were to give you all my money? Would you let me go? 
They said, okay, fine, give us all your money, we'll let you go. And they said, we have one condition on you, that you do not fight against us. When you go to Medina, don't fight against us. So Hudayfa gave up all of his wealth and he fled on the Hijrah to Medina. And at that time, the Prophet ﷺ was calling people for the Battle of Badr. Hudayfa came and told his whole story. And this promise was given to him under the threat of death, by the way, right? They were literally going to kill him. If it was allowed to betray one's promise, this would have been the best time, the Battle of Badr. And he's being duressed, he's being forced. The Prophet ﷺ said, fulfill your contract with them and we will find help from other people, not you. You do not participate. He enacted that promise that Hudayfa had taken, had, had given the people of Mecca, the Quraysh, that Hudayfa had said, I'm not going to do anything. Despite the fact the Muslims needed people at Badr, the Muslims fought at Badr, Hudayfa did not go to Badr. Okay, we, all of us, have a contract with our lands. The Quraysh, in this case, we are being like Hudayfa here. We cannot do anything. The same goes in the famous story of Salamat ibn al It's a very long story. It's in Sahih Muslim. Uh, it's a very long story. I don't have time to go into all of it. But in a nutshell, in, the, in a nutshell, uh, Salamat ibn al narrates to us what happened in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And he says that there was peace between the people of Mecca and the people of, of Medina, uh, the Quraysh and the Muslims had a peace treaty in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, and we began intermixing with one another, visiting and going back and forth, trading, meaning, you know, Hud Salama is going back and forth and he's trading uh, uh, for some relatives in Mecca, so he's going there, he's meeting with the people, and then he says, and one time, four people of the people of Mecca, of the pagans, they, uh, he was on a journey, he was on a journey with them, they came and sat with me where I was sitting under a tree, and they began to make fun of Islam and to say things about the Prophet Sallallahu Notice this is Sabun Nabi right here. Guys, listen to this. This is in the prophetic era. This is while the Prophet is alive. This is the famous Sahabi Salamat ibn al-Akwa. And he is saying, I was sitting under my tree, minding my business, and these four Qurashis came and they began saying bad things about the Prophet Sallallahu But this is Treaty of Hudaybiyah. There is a peace, there is a contract that there's not going to be warfare until blood is shed. Simply saying things that not going to bring about blood. So what did Salama do? He said, I got angry. Subhanallah, we all should get angry. We have the right to get angry. Our blood should boil. And then what? And I stood up and walked to a different tree and planted my tent over there. Subhanallah. He left them and he went away because he didn't want to hear this stuff. And he went to a different place and sat down over there. And the, the story goes on, it's a long story. The key point here, he did not stand up and kill these people. He did not stand up and spit in their faces. He did not take his sword out and do anything. Even though they are saying things about the Prophet Wasallam, but it's the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And that treaty allows for conversations. It does not allow for uh, bloodshed. And so nothing happened despite the fact this is happening in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu And other, there are un, a number of incidents that uh, Ubaidullah ibn Jahl becomes murtad in Abyssinia. Nobody does anything to him. Obviously he says things that are un-Islamic. Nobody does anything to him because they're in a minority uh, situation. So from a technical perspective, it's very clear. From an overall, you know, masalih al-mafasid, you, you weigh the pros and cons, the cost-benefit analysis. It is self-evident, dear Muslims, if a Muslim goes and does this thing, goes on a rampage, what do you expect if this continues over and over and over again? There are 
millions, tens of millions of Muslims living in these Western lands. What do you expect the governments are going to do? What is going to be the reaction? Would you blame them if they kept on making our lives more and more difficult? And so who is at fault here? By you think you are defending the Prophet wasallam, and you end up bringing harm to those who follow the Prophet wasallam. Dear Muslim, is this the only way you can think of to defend the Prophet wasallam, to go and kill somebody? Is this the only defense mechanism you have? Have you ever thought rather than killing somebody to try to live his sunnah? Have you ever thought to rather than kill somebody, to teach somebody about the Prophet ﷺ, rather than enact something that might be found in the books of fiqh? I'm not denying that they're there. They are found in the books of fiqh. But who are you to be judge, jury, executioner? Who are you to take the law into your own hand in a country that you've already taken an oath from, you already have a, a covenant with? Who are you to do something that will bring about a greater harm to the ummah? Like Salama realized that I can't do anything over here. Like Hudayfa realized I have given my oath to the Quraysh despite all that they do, I cannot do anything to them. You as well, dear Muslim, rather than channeling your love to hatred, why don't you channel your love to education? Channel your love to tell people about the Prophet ﷺ. Tell them about the incident of Ta'if and how he forgave an entire city that made fun of him. Tell them about the Prophet ﷺ and the mother of Abu Huraira. Abu Huraira came crying to the Prophet ﷺ and he said, O Messenger of Allah, my mother, kept on saying bad things about Islam. And today she said such nasty things about you that I just had to run away. And I came to you, O Messenger of Allah, make dua for my mother. Here is a lady cursing the Prophet ﷺ in Medina. Here is a lady under the jurisdiction of the Prophet ﷺ. She was saying really nasty things. Abu Huraira is crying his eyes out. He comes to the Prophet ﷺ. What does the Prophet ﷺ do? Send an assassin to kill her? What does he do? Send a mob squad to go and knock on her door and drag her into the streets? Says, what happens in some Muslim lands, what does he do? He raises his hands to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he says, oh Allah, guide the mother of Abu Huraira. Abu Huraira goes back home to give the good news that, oh my mother, the Prophet has made dua for you. But before he gets home, he finds the door shut and he hears the water pouring as if somebody's taking a bath. And his mother says, wait, oh Abu Huraira, don't come inside, I'm taking a bath. And then when he comes inside after he gives her permission, she says, لا أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وأشهد أن محمد رسول الله. The dua of the Prophet was effective instantaneously. Why don't you understand this to be defending the Prophet Look at how many times the leader of the hypocrites, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, tried to make fun of the Prophet with that derogatory manners. He said the most vulgar, the most nasty things, the most evil things. And I really don't even want to give you examples, but because of the times that we're living in, one example that is found, even for mentioning the story, but he gave this example uh, when the Prophet and the Sahaba passed by and they were now growing in number. This evil hypocrite said that it's a vulgar thing that you feed your own dog and it's going to become fat and attack you back, right? Like this is a treacherous thing. Of course, you understand the connotation, what is meant here. This is Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul saying this in Medina. And so many other things were said and the Prophet never once, in fact, when people said, let me go kill him. He said, no, it's going to cause a bigger harm. Let it be. He made dua that Allah forgive him. He went into his qabr. He put his own garment around him. He made dua to Allah until Allah said in the Quran, enough. 
don't make dua for this hypocrite. Even if you make dua 70 times, Allah is not gonna uh, forgive him. Subhanallah, have you not studied the seerah that you wanna mention those stories? Yes, there are other stories as well, and they all have a context and a place to be mentioned, no doubt about that. I'm not denying that, but how about these stories? How about all of this that shows the rahmah and the compassion and the mercy? Is your love for the Prophet only manifested in hating everybody else? Yes, sometimes punishment needs to be shown by those qualified to show it, but not you and me, not individuals. Our job, we, we present the message of the Prophet ﷺ in our lives, in our compassion, in our mercy, and we demonstrate what it really means to follow the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. I have no qualms con concluding this lecture by stating very emphatically that this type of militant reaction, this type of wanton bloodshed, this type of perverted vigilante justice, it does far more damage to the honor of the Prophet ﷺ than those cartoons can possibly do. Those people who kill in the name of Islam, the way that they are doing it in this wanton disregard for the Sharia and the principles of the Sharia, they are harming the religion of Islam more than any cartoon could possibly harm the image of Islam. Dear Muslims, Allah says in the Quran, Inna kafaynaka al-mustahzi'een. Allah will deal with those who make fun of the Prophet wasallam. Yes, Allah will deal with them. You and I, we need to deal with ourselves and defend the honor of the Prophet ﷺ in a manner that is consistent with the goals of the Sharia and frankly, that is consistent with the Prophet ﷺ himself. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide me and you and all of us to that which he loves. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to be resurrected in the company of the Prophet ﷺ. And inshallah, we'll continue next week. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. يا من أجبت دعاء نوح فانتصر وحملته في فلكك المشحون يا من أحال النار حول خليله روحا وريحانا بقولك كون